You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. You know, a few weeks ago, I asked for 120 people to join me praying for revival here for 50 days. That time period between Easter and Pentecost, the birth of the church, which uh, for us this year will be uh, June the 5th. Uh, and uh, the question became, among some of the elders, people were saying, going to the elders saying, well, what, what, do, what does he mean by revival? What is revival? What are you talking about? Is it like the revivals we did when I was a child? We had revival when I was a child. No, you never had, you, you've never had, our generation has never seen revival. Uh, there's been a spot of it here and a spot of it there. It never has lasted long. Uh, it has not traveled very far. Um, but we've really never experienced revival. And so I said, would you join me and let's pray. God's answered every other prayer we've prayed here at this church. Let's pray and ask God to give us revival, not to give us another piece of property, not to give us money, not to give us finances, not to give us numbers of people, but would God give us revival? First revival meeting that I remember was preached by the great old evangelist. If you, if you know this name, I just want you to slip your hand up. His name was Vance Havner. You, you remember him? Yeah, us old people do, don't we, Joe? Um, Vance Havner, I want you to listen to what he says. It is not our business. Now, this was a word that the Lord gave me to help me this morning because I'm extremely nervous this morning to the point to where I'm almost nauseated to stand up here to speak. Uh, this is a difficult task that I have to talk about revival but Vance Havner said, it is not our business to make the message acceptable. It's not my business to make it acceptable, but to make it available. We are not to see that they like it, <laughs> but that they get it. So thank you, Dr. Havner. Thank you, Lord, for speaking that to my heart this morning. I want you to take your copy of God's Word, and I want you to go to that passage that was just read, 2 Kings chapter 18. What is revival? Now, I could spend the next hour giving you definitions. Um, Michael Catt, who was at Sherwood Baptist Church in Georgia, is considered among Southern Baptists to be an expert on revival. Uh, you've heard of Sherwood movies, Facing the Giants, um, all of those movies, uh, Sherwood, that's Michael Catt. That came out of Sherwood Baptist Church. Michael says this. He says, Jesus is revival and revival is Jesus. That's pretty good. I think that's, that's about right. It sums it up. Um, Richard Owen Roberts, who is the closest thing I've ever met to a prophet, uh, says in his great book on revival, a revival is an extraordinary work of the Spirit of God producing extraordinary results. And then um, Richard Owen Roberts goes back and he says, I, I condensed it. I made it a little shorter. And uh, he says, revival is God's presence in the midst of his people. Now, that's the question. What, is, what does that mean, God's presence? Well, Manly Beasley, the great old Baptist evangelist, said about the presence of God. He says, the presence of God is hard to define, but his absence is easy to detect. We know when God's here, and we know when there is an absence of the Spirit of God in a place. You go in to preach. I'm, I'm beginning a, a real busy season of preaching 
This Wednesday night, I'll be somewhere. Um, uh, next Wednesday night, I'm up in Tennessee. Uh, Wednesday night and then Thursday at lunch. And I go in a lot of places and I preach. And it is obvious when you walk in so many times, you can sense the Spirit of God is here or you can sense this is going to be difficult. This is going to be tough to get through because you don't sense the Spirit of God. The presence of God is hard to define, but his absence is easy to detect. There have been really three great revivals that have swept America. Uh, and uh, one movement, three revivals, one movement. In 1740, you had the first great awakening. How many high school students? Do we have any high school students in this service? Don't raise your hands. Anybody? Any high school student? A couple of them? Listen, oh, there you are up there. Okay. Do you know who started? Who was responsible for the first great awakening? High school students. High school students. Not preachers. Not Jonathan Edwards. uh, Not older adults. High school students. You go back and look at these revivals. In uh, 1800, you had the second great awakening. The second great awakening came, 1800. Timothy Dwight preached it. And do you know where it started? College students, are you in here? Started on the college campus of all places, Yale University. And it started in chapel when Timothy Dwight went out committed to preach and to teach college students that the Word of God was inerrant and infallible. And out of that came the second great awakening with college, high school students and college students. And I'm convinced that most moves of God start with young people like that. The third great move of God and renewal and revival in America was in 1857, and it was the great layman. Listen, listen to this. Layman, not preachers, Jeremiah Lamphere, layman's prayer revival. Do you know where it started? New York City. New York City. It started in New York City. And tens of thousands of people across America came to Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to watch this, and I'll give you the fourth one in just a minute. I want you to watch. In 1740, during the first great awakening, it's almost as if God sends a great awakening, a great revival, a great move before some disastrous situation. The American Revolution came right after the first great awakening. The 1800s. The War of 1812, which was pretty devastating. They burned Washington. They burned the White House. Dolly Madison barely got out the White House with the picture of George Washington, remember? Uh, 1812, and then uh, 1857, right before the most devastating thing in American history, the Civil War. The fourth great movement, we wouldn't call it a renewal or a revival, but it was a movement, the 1970s. Anybody know what that is? Jesus movement. How many were saved in the Jesus movement? Deborah, you were. You came to Christ in the 70s. We were off at church camp and uh, up at Lookup Lodge, and she came to. I've had, I've been such a great influence on her. Um, she came, I came to the Lord in 69. She came to the Lord in 70s. Most people my age and a little older, we all came to Jesus Christ out of the Jesus movement. And tons of people were called into the ministry and the missions out of the Jesus movement. Now, as you begin to look at revival, and I've had so many people ask, now, what are you talking about? What is revival? It is a move of God. Revival means revivify. 
Vivify means to make alive or to give life or to animate life. It means to go back and to revivify again. There's a revival of life. And revival is not for the community. It is not for the culture. It is not for society. You cannot make something dead alive again. You got to get it alive first. (laughs) So revival is for the church. It's for believers. It's for us. It is the opening of a channel of God when he reaches down with his presence in the midst of his people. Now, I want you to listen. Not only are there great rewards to revival for people when when they experience it, there there is also certain dangers in revival. Richard Owen Roberts, who is just a a great man, he's 91, tried to call him this week. I had him on my mind, um, but I called him late at night and he was already asleep. Uh, But he wrote a great book on revival. You can still pick it up. Uh, It's been published again and again and again. But he warns, he gives 16 things about revival that are dangerous. I want you to listen to Richard Owen Roberts. Revival carries with it almost unbelievable potential for good. But the potential for evil is likewise vast. In thinking of revival, we must recognize that the blessings of divine outpourings are indispensable. However, we must not fail to prayerfully and thoughtfully consider the dangers accompanying mighty movements of the Spirit of God. I'm going to give you seven very quickly. Seven dangers that come when revival comes. And listen, let me tell you something. I have fought hell by the acre this week. If you start praying for revival, you're going to experience it. So if you don't want to do that, Don't pray for revival. Uh, You need to be prepared for spiritual warfare when you start praying for revival. Now, listen to these seven things. I won't give you all 16, but number one, giving to mere human instruments the glory due to God alone. Uh, The purpose of revival is to make God, not men, famous. To focus the eyes of the people, not upon a human leader, but upon the divine leader. To give glory, not to great men, but to a great Savior. You see, when when movements of God break out, there is always this pointing to the person, to a preacher, to an evangelist, to a person, uh, to a group or whatever, pointing to them and saying, they are the ones who preach. Listen, let me tell you something. I'm just up here as a mouthpiece. I'm as useless as dirt in St. Augustine grass. I am that useless. I'm just a mouthpiece for the text. You don't ever, ever get wrapped up in a personality. Don't ever get wrapped up in a preacher. Are you going to be disappointed? Number two, trying to duplicate by mere human efforts what can only be divinely wrought. That is, we try to stir it up, work it up, generate it up, gin it up. We're, we're generally, when we think about revival, we think about this, this emotional expression, this outer emotional expression. Um, I've been awake since 2 o'clock constantly with the Lord just bringing my mind back to this over and over again. And in the early morning hours, the Lord just spoke this to me. And I'm going to give you what the Lord gave to me. And it's this. 
Uh, revival is not the expression of an external emotion. It is the genuine moving of God in internal devotion. It's not the people go nuts and start doing all kind of crazy things. You've heard of the barking revival. You've heard of the laughing revival. You've heard of revivals where people just pass out. You've heard of this. You've heard of that. You've heard of the other. Now, I'm going to take you through something that I believe God was speaking to me in the early morning hours this morning. When God's presence comes in the midst of a people, there is very little movement. There is very little laughter. There's certainly no barking. <laughs> there is very little emotional expression. You get into the presence of God and you're terrified. When you get into the presence of God and you realize how holy he is, how sovereign he is, how seriously he takes sin, you, you, you don't feel like cutting around and running out and around the church. You come to a place where you get very, very fearful as in awe. Now, I'm going to show you this in the text. The Lord just put this in my head, this I was lying in the recliner about 3 o'clock this morning. Would you look? I hope you've got a Bible. Go with me back to Exodus chapter 19. The presence of God comes down. By the way, this, this is one of the early revivals. Uh, chapter 32 of Exodus, chapter 33, you've got the revival at uh, Sinai, the renewal there. You've got the renewal under Samuel in 1 Samuel 7. You've got the re renewal at Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18. You've got the revival at Nineveh. That's the greatest revival in all of history. The whole country got saved. Everybody got saved at that revival. Can you imagine that? Jonah preached that. And that guy didn't even want to preach it. Uh, you've got the renewal under Asa in 2 Chronicles 15, the renewal led by Hezekiah that I'm going to show you. We'll get to 2 Chronicles 29, 30, and 31 in just a minute. And number uh, 7, you've got the renewal under Josiah, 2 Chronicles 34 and 35, and you've got the renewal under Ezra and Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, let me take you back to this. So this is one of the first revivals or renewals. God's presence comes down just if... Uh, 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 Richard Owen Roberts is right. God's presence in the midst of his people. God's presence comes down at Sinai. The people are there. Verse 16 of chapter 19 of Exodus. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. Look down at verse 19. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. He comes down and he says, I'm going to speak to the people. The people will hear me. This is the presence of God in the midst of his people. But you get over to chapter 20, verse 18. Listen to what happens. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled. And we're told that twice. And they stood at a distance. Now, do you get that? They're, they're fearful. You read that in 19, you read it in 20. They stand back at a great distance. And they said to Moses, I, let me just translate. You go talk to God and you come back and tell us what he said but we're terrified to hear him. They were scared out of their wits. 
uh, when they saw this flashing and this lightning and this smoke and the thunder and the earthquake that shook the ground and all of this. Let me tell you, that's what happens. You, you don't go around acting silly and crazy when God shows up. You stand in awe. You stand in fear. You stand in reverence. Now, if you want to see where the silliness comes in, go over to the 32nd chapter of Exodus. When Moses comes down the mountain, he comes down the mountain and listen to chapter 32, verse 19. It came about as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf. You know what's going on. The calf and the dancing. Now all of the crazy emotional excesses begin to pour out, not in the presence of God, but when we're trying to work up our own worship. I'm just going to let that settle. You need to hear that. And uh, you need to think about that. Listen to this. Number three, the problems and the, and the danger of revival is when we focus on the peculiar or the sensational. We should be focused on Jesus. Number four, extreme measures show up. I, I can't remember who it was, but I have read that what has shut down more revivals happens to be extreme measures more than anything else. It just gets crazy. Number five, I'm not talking about us doing something crazy here. Number five, there's the neglect of teaching and preaching. For some reason, we are in a generation where all we think we need is just to come and be emotionally stirred by music, and uh, we don't need the Word of God. That's why we're in the situation we're in. We've got too little of the worship of, uh, too little of the Word of God. And by the way, the Word of God is worship. He comes and listens to the next thing that he says. Number six, it encourages a party spirit. Revivals throughout history have been plagued by conflict. The old school versus the new school. The old measures pitted against the new measures. The old lights fighting against the new lights. Long ago, Satan discovered that if he could get Christians fighting among themselves over revival, it would be the end of revival. And number seven, a censoriousness of spirit. That is severely critical and constant fault finding. If you want to kill the Spirit of God in a place, just get critical of everybody else. Just begin to find fault with everything you can find fault with, and you will squat. Listen, you'll be the fire extinguisher to the move of God. I'm going to give the invitation at that. No, there we go, right there. Listen, I've never thought of revival being dangerous, uh, but... When I read Richard Owen Roberts and talked to him, he gave me a greater appreciation of that than I've ever had before. I want you to look with me this morning at 2 Kings chapter 18. Now, folks, I've got way more to preach than I can possibly preach. So I'm just going to throw a little bit out there, and we're going to pray, and we're going to go home. Uh, because I've been up since 2, so I'm going to bed. Um, now, listen to me carefully. There are two things that I see. Hezekiah preaches or Hezekiah rules through what is considered to be the greatest Old Testament revival. Josiah has a, a, a great one. It's kind of a toss-up for me. But there are a lot that believe that this is the beginning, and it's just the beginning right here. What you come to in 2 Kings 18, 
the first six verses, you find nowhere else in Scripture. But you do find the revival of, uh, under Hezekiah in chapter 29, 30, and 31 of 2 Chronicles. So just go on over to 2 Chronicles 30 and put your finger there and go back to 2 Kings chapter 18. Because this is where it opens up. Hezekiah is an unusual man. He is as godly a man as there was in all of Israel. In fact, listen to this. It's going to tell us here that he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. He trusted God so much. He was as godly a young man. He was 25 when he became king. Now, I want you to listen to something. Here's the fascinating thing about, about Hezekiah. His father was Ahaz. Look back to 2 Kings chapter 16. He was the second wickedest king in all of Judah. Ahaz, his father. He was unbelievable. 2 Kings 16, 2, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not what was right in the sight of the Lord, his God, as his father David had done. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Now, this is when the nations are split. The 10 northern tribes have gone off. That's Israel. The two southern tribes are Judah. Ahaz was king of Judah. He wanted to be like the wicked kings of Israel. And by the way, by this time, those 10 tribes had been defeated and carried off by the Assyrians. He wanted to be as wicked as the wicked kings that he saw in Israel. And so what he did was this. Look, look, look at what the text says. He not only did not do right in the sight of the Lord, he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his sons pass through the fire. That is, he took his son and he offered his son as a burnt sacrifice as a burnt offering to a pagan God. Now, I don't know what the difference is between that and what California is debating right now to give a mother the right to have three or four days after the birth of a child that she can still say, I don't want the child and you can take the child's life. Being debated in Cal... Being, where else? Being debated in California right now. And you say, well, I don't believe that. Well, go turn on the news. Read something sometime. Uh, it, it's happening. It's real. Now, I don't know the difference between that and what this guy did, except the method is a little different. That's where we are as a nation. We are desperately in need. There is nothing that will say the GOP will not save this country. The Democrats will not save this country. The independents, the Green Party, the socialists, the communists, whatever you want, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. The only thing that's going to do anything to keep us from flying off the cliff is a revival sent by God. Is that the presence of God would show up somewhere, somehow, at some place, and keep us from destroying ourselves. Well, this guy right here sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now, that was his father. You know who his son was? The wickedest king in all of Israel, Judah's history. The wicked, Manasseh. There was no, as bad as Ahaz was, he couldn't hold a candle to Manasseh. 
He also burned his children. He also killed his children in a worship of pagan gods. But he did so much incredible wickedness. The only thing I can say is this, is listen to me carefully on this. You can stop blaming mom and dad. Hezekiah is a great picture of the fact that regardless of how godless your parents may have been, you can become a very godly person if you'll commit yourself to the Lord. Now, the other side of that is this. There's his son, Manasseh. Here he was. He was such a godly man. Did he not have any influence on his children? Let me tell you something. When they were little and I could get my hands on them, I could do something with them. But they're grown now. They're grown, and I am not responsible at this point for the decisions that they make. I'm not going to get them out of every hardship they get into. I am there to give spiritual counsel and direction as long as they'll listen to me. But I want to tell you, because there are a lot of us parents that beat ourselves up, you are not responsible for the spiritual decision your children make. They bear that responsibility. Hezekiah had a wicked, wicked father, but he chose to follow the Lord. Manasseh had a godly, godly father, but at some point he chose to follow wickedness. However, before Manasseh dies, he repents to the Lord and God forgives him. That sounds like the Bible to me. Rear up a child in the way he should go. And when he gets old, he won't depart from it. That sure carried out in the life of Manasseh. Did he deserve to go to heaven? I'm going to see Manasseh. You're going to see Manasseh in heaven, old wretch. You're going to see him in heaven. I wouldn't have done it, but I'm not God. (laughs) And that's how good God is. Now, there are two things that are here. I've got little time to give you. Two things that I see that precede the move of God on a people that I want you to see in the life of Hezekiah right here. Number one is going to be this whole thing of a reformation. Now, remember, revival is going back. It's not something new. Revival is going back and capturing the Word of God. It is going back to the truth of Scripture. Reformation is a reforming. We form things, and then let me tell you something. They get out of shape. We have... We have in, in, in the Baptist church, and in here, we're doing this somewhat right now. You have to go back and you have to tweak the Constitution. You have to tweak bylaws and all those kind of things. Why? Because they're human-made to begin with, and times change, and then you've got to do a little clarification, a little change here, a little change there, and pretty soon you change yourself to where you just accommodate every sin in the world. There is a church in Greenville, South Carolina tonight just that's where we would go when we wanted to go to town. A church in Greenville, South Carolina tonight who's hosting a drag queen for their service. They say there will be as many laughs as there are amens. And come on out, everybody, it's free. It's blasphemy. That's how far the church has gone. You say that sin, it is not just sin, it is pure rebellion against God. In a church, do you not think that that community laughs at people calling themselves Christians? Who would embrace, do you love them? Sure I do. I have friends that are in the homosexual lifestyle, but I don't embrace the sin. 
Oh, well, that's not being kind. Listen, you call it whatever you want to call it, but it's exactly the word of God. I'm kind. I love them. I'll do things for them, but I will not embrace a person's sin. Now you say, well, that's hard for me. Well, it just has to be hard for you, but I'm telling you, this is why we need revival. This is why we need to get back to the word of God and not the word of somebody else. And so Hezekiah comes and notice what he does. Let me give you this quickly. He did right in the sight of the Lord. Verse 3, 2 Kings 18, according to all that his father David, not his father, but you have to go back to his great, 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 great grandfather here, David. He removed the high places. It was on the high places, the tops of hills, the tops of mountains. That's why when you go to Israel, oftentimes I'll say to my group when I get there and we get into Jerusalem and we look around, I'll say to them right then, listen, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my strength. It comes from the Lord. Now, do you hear what the psalmist is saying? I will lift up mine eyes to the hill. I'm going to look up there. That's where the pagans worship. That's not where the people of God worship. They worship where? In the tabernacle, in the temple. I'll lift up mine eyes to the hills. From whence will come my hope? Will it show pop won't come from there? It comes from the Lord, who is creator of all the earth, the psalmist says. The high places were places of pagan worship. They had the stones. If you notice there in the text, there are the stones. That's the altars that were there. That was to designate the place of, uh, of worship up on these high hills. They would go up there because up there they felt like that they would influence everything underneath them. He goes up there and he breaks down the sacred pillars. He removes the high places. He cuts down the Asherah. The Asherah was like a totem pole. Astarte, in the, the Phoenicians called it Astarte. The Hebrews would call it Asherah. She was a goddess. She was the mother of the gods. She was the mother of Baal. She was the mother of 70 different gods. They were up there worshiping Mother Earth. If they did not have a pole, they would just worship under a tree. And they would worship the tree as Asherah. And so he goes up and he cuts them down. Look at these strong verbs that are here. He removes, he broke down, he cut down, and then he comes to this fourth thing that this is the only place in Scripture we're told this. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan, which means the bronze thing or the thing of bronze. Now, if you want to know about that, you're going to have to go back to Numbers 21. In Numbers chapter 21, Israel, these Hebrews are on their way to the promised land. And uh, as they are on their way, they run into a group of people at Arad, the king of Arad, Athrium. And they come out to fight against Israel. And they fight, they kill some, they take some off as captive. And Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you'll indeed deliver us from these people into, my, into our hand, then I will utterly destroy their city. Listen, they said, God, please deliver us. They've come, they've killed some, they've taken some of our people off. Help us fight this battle. And if you'll help us fight this battle, we'll wipe out their pagan cities. So do you know what happens? God heard the voice of Israel. He delivered up the Canaanites. 
and they utterly destroyed them. Then they set out from Mount Hor, verse 4, by the way of the Red Sea. He says, okay, come on now. I've given you victory here over them. Let's go on up to the promised land. And as they journeyed, look at the end of verse 4. The people became impatient because of the journey. Let's take it too long. It's too hard. We don't have anything good to eat. This is too long. This this is too much. This is too this, too that, too the other. And so they get impatient. And what do they do? They speak, verse 5, against God and Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Why are we out here going through all of this? Why is all of this happening to us? There's no food. There's no water. We loathe this miserable food. God's given them food every morning by manna. We loathe this miserable food. food. And so what does God do? Look at verse 6, chapter 21 of Numbers. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people died. He sent out vipers. Now, I nearly stepped on a viper in Beth Shemesh. Bet-Shean, Bet-Shean, we were up, going up the, the hill. There was a hill there, and a, kind of like a little acropolis there. And it was where they had a temple up there. And Deb and I were climbing up the side of that hill and almost stepped, came close to a viper. And listen, let me tell you something. You don't want that. You know what happens when a viper bites you? The venom of a viper will cause your capillaries and, um, what's the other part? Begins with a C. Capillaries and what? Come on, doctor, where are you? Corpuscles. Your corpuscles and your capillaries, it'll cause them to explode. The venom gets in them and just causes them to burst. And so you begin to hemorrhage on the inside. And for two days, you are in excruciating pain. Hemorrhaging inside, internally, you are extremely sick. You're, you're in a great deal of it. And then all of a sudden, the pain passes away. And the pain passes away and you think, I've survived it. And then you drop dead. That's what, that, that's, what ha- that's what was happening here. That's terrifying. Uh, you know, one or two snakes is one thing, but when you see all of these vipers coming in to the camp of Israel, the people panicked, rightly so. They're dying left and right. And so they come and look at what they say. Verse 7, so the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. We've sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. God doesn't like us talking about one another. Over and over, God's judgment falls on the Hebrews because of one thing. They're grumbling. They're murmuring. They're constantly talking about each other. God says, I get sick of that. I saved you. I redeemed you. I brought you up out of Egypt. I fed you. I've given you water. Miraculously so. And all you can do is belittle and cut down and dig other people. If for no other reason, we need revival to curb that in the church. You say, when a preacher, are we that bad? I don't know. Are you? I have no idea. Nobody says it to me. And so God tells Moses, you make a brass, brass serpent, put it on a pole, hold it up, and tell them to look. And it was, a, it was a demonstration of God's power, his mercy, his grace, his loving kindness, his long-suffering. It was a picture of his awesomeness, his sovereignty. When they looked at that, it cured them. They were healed immediately from that death. It's a picture of, it's a picture of sin, what sin will do in your life. And what will happen to you when you look to the cross, 
That goes back to Moses. It was a good thing then. God commanded Moses to make it, and it was used uh, by God to care for the people. And it also became a symbol of what the Messiah would do. Because Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It became a symbol of what the Messiah would come to do, how he would be lifted up. And if we would come to him, we would be forgiven of our sins. We would live. We would have eternal life. But this is what happened in the nation. They took all of that that was applied to that of God, the character of God, and they applied it to that brass serpent. And they began to worship. It says they offered up incense. Well, my stars, that's an act of worship. Inside the holy place of the tabernacle, they had an incense altar before the great veil of the temple that cut off the, the holy of holies. And so the priest would offer up this incense on that incense altar and all of that smoke would go up. It was a picture of the prayers of the people going up before God. They offered incense. It was a picture. They were praying to this stupid thing. They were praying to this bronze serpent. They were worshiping this. And Hezekiah comes And before revival ever gets there, he says, there's some cleaning up we've got to do here. There's some altars in our lives that need to go. There's some places and things in our lives that need to go. There's some tradition. That bronze serpent was good in one generation, but let me tell you something. It was just a method. It didn't have any power of its own. And yet they came to worship that thing as if it was God himself. Do you know the Pharisees do that in the New Testament? Not with the word of God. We talk about them always with the oral law. It really wasn't the word of God. It was their traditions. Mark chapter 7, Jesus looks at these Pharisees when they come to him And uh, they say to him, why do your disciples not wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders? And you know what Jesus says to them? Mark chapter 7, let me get to it. Verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Now, I don't know at Valleydale what our traditions are. I've never really picked up on much traditions here. But I want to tell you something. There, there are some of you here that you may be at this place where there's some things in your life that have got to go before God will do a work in your life. And there are some traditions here in this church. Now, I'm not sure. I don't know. Listen, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll give you one. Not from this church, but I'll give you one from my, out of my illustrious path. Hey, preacher, why don't we use a hymn book anymore? We just don't ever worship since we stopped using that hymn book. I said, I know, I know. I'm very familiar with the passage in Isaiah 36 where it says, thou shalt use hymn books in the midst of worship or you've never worshiped God. I said, I know, it's in there. It's in the Bible, isn't it? You'd be surprised at the silly things that we laugh at that God says, got to go. Got to go. If you want revival in your life, this has got to go. Now, listen, let me show you the second thing quickly. Go over to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. 
Now, this is at the very beginning of all of this. This is where the revival begins. Some things you've got to clean up in your life. Some things you've got to get rid of. And I can't stand up here and tell you what it is. All I know is what's for me. Hezekiah is going to send a letter to the whole. Now, this is an amazing thought to me. Hezekiah, the king of the nation, is going to send a letter to everybody in the kingdom, everybody in the nation of Judah. And he's going to tell them, watch, four things beginning in verse 6. Now, if you don't think this is wild, what if you went home this afternoon and turned on C-SPAN and you saw the Speaker of the House and Speaker of the Senate get up and call the nation to repentance? You'd be on your phone to me real fast, wouldn't you? I'd be on my phone. I don't know what I'd be passed out. That's where I'd be. Somebody had to be waking me up. The couriers went throughout all of Israel and Judah with the letters from the hand of the king and his princes, even according to the command of the king. Now, the, com- the king is commanding this, and he's going to tell them four things. These are the four things he says you've got to do. Now, what this comes down to here is commitment. Where's our commitment? Where's your commitment? We're going to have to get rid of some things, but then there's some things we're going to have to commit to. Listen to what it says about uh, 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 Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord his God of Israel. For he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Four strong verbs right there. Listen, trusted, clung, did not depart, but kept. And because of that, he had committed himself. He now turns to the nation and he says to the nation, the king, to the people. And he says four things. Number one, you've got to repent. The couriers went throughout all of Israel and Judah with the letters from the, from the hand of the king and his princes, even according to the command of the king, saying, O sons of Israel, return. That's the word repent. He's going to use it five times in four verses. Repent. Return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to those of you, that he'll turn around to those of you who have escaped and are left from the hand of the kings of the Assyrians. He's talking about some of those Jews that escaped the Assyrians up in the north. He says, if you want God, you, you, it, the mercy is you've escaped those Assyrians. And he says, what you need to do is if you want God to turn back to you, you'd better turn to God. He says to the people, you'd better repent. Number two, he says, you need to be faithful. Verse seven, don't be like your fathers and your brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord God of their fathers so that he made them a horror as you see. He's talking about what happened to Israel. They were unfaithful. They worshiped all of these pagan idols like they're doing now in Judah. He says, can't you learn a lesson from them? My stars, I can't tell you how many times I've told my kids, listen, don't learn everything for yourself. Learn from somebody else. Let make a, let, don't make every mistake. Learn from somebody else's mistake. And that's exactly what Hezekiah is saying to Judah right here. He says, look at Israel. That's a horror show up there. Do you know what the Assyrians did? They came in and they cut the heads of people off. And they built pyramids out of skulls. Now, they sound like a, a lot of fun, don't they? They built pyramids, these huge pyramids, out of the skulls of the people they defeated by cutting their heads off. He says, that's a horror show up there. He says, be faithful to God, not like the unfaithfulness of those up there in those 10 northern tribes. Look at what happened to them. I can tell, I could stand up here and point out to you church after church after church after church, 
Let's be faithful to Jesus. Let's be faithful to the Lord. Let's don't end up with 25 people like these other places out of here. Let's don't end up with a dead service, nothing moving. Listen, I've been in churches where they had graveyards next to them that if the dead could get up, they'd move. Verse 8, don't stiffen your neck like your fathers, but yield to the Lord. Enter his sanctuary, which he has consecrated, and serve the Lord your God, that his burning anger may turn away from you. Folks, I don't think we ever think that God ever gets upset with us. It would probably scare the wits out of us to know how unhappy God is with a lot of stuff in our lives. Amen. Amen. Reverently, amen. He says, you need to serve the Lord. You don't need to just show up and sit. You need to be doing something. But number four, look at this. He comes back to this whole thing of repentance. Verse 9, for if you repent to the Lord, if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and will return to this. He says they can come back. Do you know what the sad thing is? Is The sad thing is that Israel never returned to the land. Now, Judah did after the Babylonian captivity, but after the Assyrian captivity, for those in the 10 northern tribes, they never came back. Those in Babylon repented. Those from Israel never repented, even when they had been taken off into captivity. That's what he's saying right here. He is saying this, if you'll repent, God will return you to the land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return. Repent. Five times he says repent. Now I want to tell you something. This is why nobody wants revival. Because we don't want to repent. Well, I'm not going to. Listen, I live my life. That's my personal stuff. I'm not going to repent from it. Well, listen, don't ever expect to have God move in your life when there's no repentance. It will never happen. It will never happen in a church. We cling to our pride, our arrogance, our independence. Listen, that's what he wants to break. By the way, God isn't impressed with a single one of us in here. Not me, not you. We might as well lay our pride aside and get on our face and cry out to God, have mercy on us. We don't know how close judgment is. I'm going to close with this verse. Out of Hosea chapter 5, God is speaking. He's speaking to Ephraim, and he says to them, I will go away and return to my place. God says, I'm going back to heaven. I'm going away from here until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And he said, when affliction comes, they'll seek me earnestly. All you got to do is let something happen in the night tonight to your mate, to you, or to your child. And suddenly, we'll get very interested in coming before God. God says, 
do it before that happens. Let's stand. That's revival. That's where it begins. I'm going to come back on June the 5th, and I'm going to follow that up. But that's where it begins. That's enough. That's enough for me. I don't know if it's enough for you. That's enough for me to handle. God, what things in my life need to go? Lord, what things in my life do I need to just destroy and crush and get rid of and cut down and do away with? Lord, what things in my life do I need to throw into the trash of history and be done with it? Lord God, I need to come and repent. To repent of so many things. To get before you and to pour my heart out in the ways that I've, I've, I've failed you. And the things that I've said, the things that I've thought, the things that I've done, I need to repent of those. It's not, Lord, that I believe that I'm lost. It's, Lord, that I hunger for you to move in my life. To make me new. To revive me. To draw me closer to yourself to satisfy the longing in my life that can't be satisfied any other way. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't want to know the hand of judgment or the wrath of a holy God. but yet I long in my heart to be closer to you than I've ever been before. Work in my heart, Father. Create a devotion in my heart, Lord, and a hunger that will be satisfied only in drawing closer to you. Father, grant that for the church that you've called me to. May there be an insatiable hunger, Father, not to know the Word for the sake of trivia, but to know the Word of God so that we may be more like you. So that in these days in which we live, Father, our work would be effective in this community so that the community will hear God is moving in that place. If you've ever thought of trusting God, Someone there can help you with that. Father, I pray for that person that's here this morning that is closest to hell, and none of us are aware of it. Lord, would you reclaim them? Would you save them? Would you bring them to yourself? Oh, Father, if we could see you pour out your Spirit in our midst so that people are saved and that Christians come to be cleansed personally. Give to us, Lord, revival. Would you come just in this brief moment? I'll extend the invitation shortly, briefly. But if God is speaking, would you come?
Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.